All right, turn in your Bibles to James chapter 4. I want to just do a little bit of a Bible study. Just kind of drawing from this morning about discipleship and what that looks like in the world. All right. Now, before I read any further, I want to draw your attention to verse 17. Therefore, to him that knows to do good and does it not, to him it is sin. All right, what are your thoughts here? How many of us are guilty? All right, right here. All right, now let me tell you how I usually have heard this verse preached. And I want to give a, another sense to it than I've heard it preached all my life. They would preach this verse and... They would say, all right, if you know something is good to do and you're not doing it, then you're sinning. The sin of omission. And that is true. There's sins of omission. There's things that you should do and so on and so forth. But there's a lot of good things that you should do <laughs> if you had the time and the ability and the power and everything else like that. And I think I've heard preachers literally wear their parishioners out. You should be at this meeting, that meeting, that meeting, doing this cause, that cause, that cause, that cause, because these are all really good things for you to do. And if you, do, if you know something's good, then you're not doing it. Then, man, you're sinning. What a sinful person you are. It's a very legalistic look at this text. Uh, and, and I have literally heard people wore out trying to keep up with all the things that the preacher says that they need to be doing. And I don't think that's what the text means. All right. Now, the first point, I, the, not the first point, the first observation I want you to make is this. Go you, go ye, in the King English. No, that's not right. I'm thinking of this morning's text. What's the very first word of the text? Therefore. Therefore. Now, when you see therefore, why is it there? For. What's it there for? It's a conclusion of an argument. And this text flows. It's, it's the argument that he is making based upon the verses that came before. So we understand its meaning in its context. Now, what is its context? Go back now to verse 13. There is actually, this is a string of imperatives that James is teaching, and not like I said, this is just a little bit more of a Bible study than anything tonight. And really, this is about the eighth straight imperative that James expounds on, starting way back in chapter 3. And the imperative here is an implied imperative. It's not necessarily stated until you get to verse 17, where it says, you figure out, well, the imperative on my life here is I need to do good. What does it mean to do good? Go to now, you that say, Today or tomorrow we will go into such a city and continue there a year and buy and sell and get gain, whereas you know not what shall be on the morrow. For what is your life? It is even a vapor that appears for a little time and then vanishes away. 
For that you ought to say, here comes the, an implied imperative, the ethical imperative, you ought to say, if the Lord will, we shall live and do this or that. But now you rejoice in your boasting. All such rejoicing is evil. Therefore, the conclusion of the argument that he's making, therefore, to him that knows to do good and does it not, to him it is sin. Now, what is doing good here in this context? Doing good is doing the will of God and seeking the will of God. There, I've already given it away. We can close our Bibles and go. Well, let's march through the text a little bit here. So, so Christ went about doing good, it says, in Acts 10.38. We are to mirror that, and we have that in this implied imperative. And the imperative is just simply this. It's teaching us that we should prosecute our lives in doing the good that God would have us to do. That is the Christian ethic here. And James directs them away from planning their life absent of God's will. And warns them that they, knowing to do good, are sinning if they are not busy doing such. And then this, is, this follows here from the text. And I'm going to have, give you three points just real quick if, uh, if you want to note them here. Uh, they are, we, we see in this text, the folly of sin, the boasting of pride, and then the imperative to do good. And I want to just go through each and every one of these real quick. First, we see the folly of sin. Let's look at the folly in verse 13 uh, through, well, basically through verse 15. Well, go to now ye that say today or tomorrow we will go into such a city and, and continue there a year and buy and sell and get gain. The, the go, I love this go-to now. This is kind of a, a Hebraic expression from the Old Testament, Genesis eleven seven, 7, for instance. Uh, basically, he's drawing attention. It comes from the word to lead and now, and all he is doing is it's giving a sense of urgency to his hearer. He's saying, listen, look, look at this right here, right now. This is something you need to pay attention to. So that's just kind of the old English way of trying, not the old English, but the kind of a middle English uh, phraseology to try to capture that idea. Go to now, it says there in the King James. So in other words, come and see this folly. Look at this folly. Look at this pitfall so you can avoid it. And it is... Not a general warning for all the brother for, for it is not a general warning for all brothers in Christ, though they all may gain from it, but it's something for them to stop and to think about. Here, the person that he is talking to go to now, you that say, whoever that you may be, those that are plotting and planning their future. They're speaking confidently about it, about the immediate future. They say today. And the, uh, the uh, distant future, tomorrow, or the next or the near, depending on, those are basically just adverbs uh, that, that are there, but the next or the near, they have short and, and long-term plans that are in line. We immediately think, or I immediately think as I'm looking at this, is that story that Christ shared in Luke 12 of the rich fool. The rich fool. He sounded like a really good, prudent, wise businessman. 
right? Okay, am I the only one that thinks <laughs> the rich fool sounded, sounded pretty wise? He says, what am I going to do with all my goods? So he's starting to calculate. He's starting to plan. I'll tell you what I'm going to do. He comes up with a good plan. I'm going to tear down my barns. I'm going to build greater barns. And I'm going to say to my soul, you got everything you need now. You can retire. Right? All right. So, and God says, you fool. And that's kind of the same tact that James is bringing to bear here. What we have here is good, worldly wisdom. We're going to go into such a city. We've made this plan. We're going to go into such a city. We're going to do the first step and then the second step. And, uh, and we're going to buy, we're going to sell, we're going to get gain, we're going to do all these things, and it's going to turn out really good for us. I mean, we tell our kids to plan for your future, right? That's what they're doing. The uh, heart of man devises his way. Proverbs 16, 9. So what do we see? What's wrong here then? What's wrong is not obvious to the world, right? <laughs> and it's not even really obvious to most of us yet. If we're just simply reading verse 13, it's all well and good. They're going to go to a certain city. The one at hand. They're going to continue. They're going to do business. They're going to make gain. They're going to avoid loss. All really good things. They're going to traffic and prosper. It doesn't say they're going to do anything evil. They're just going to try to go prosper. And their plans seem sound to them. They believe, though, that they are going, their plans are going to be prosperous in their own strength and in their own will that that alone is sufficient to make it happen. It kind of reveals the hubris of this. What does the scripture say in Proverbs 27? One, don't boast about tomorrow. Here they are, they're boasting about tomorrow. And the folly of the pursuit itself. What is gained to them may be lost. But And they're considering prosperity their number one goal. Godliness is gain, is what Paul warned against at, at, at another point in time. But what we really see here is setting all that stuff aside, we see a man that believes himself autonomous from God. Right? I mean, I'm not even sure he's even the person that he's talking about or warning about here is, has a thoughts about God at all. Maybe he considered himself a Christian. I don't know. Maybe there was a particular person he had in mind that everybody, all of his people would know. Or maybe this is just the normal character among those that James were writing. And so it was someone that they knew, but whoever it was appeared to just be autonomous. It says of the wicked in Psalm 10:4, God is not in all of his thoughts, none of his plans. God's not there. I think we've already touched on what he's going to bring out later on the text. So the folly of these proud men is the spirit of autonomy. What is autonomy? Self-law. Uh, that's all the word means. It means it means I'm a law unto myself. I'm autonomous. I am. Well, I've quoted the uh, the, the famous poem earlier this morning. 
Uh, I am master of my own fate, captain of my own soul. Uh, you know, I, I'm charting my course. I, I am, I am, I've got my, I've got my plans. I'm autonomous. They go forward with their plans of their life without any thought of God, either as the first cause or the final cause to which their plans should be directed. He is not part of the near or the next steps anywhere. God is just absent from the planning of verse 13. And they act according to their own will, for their own ends, by their own wisdom. And this has now painted a portrait of a lot of people that we know, right? This is, a, this is, this is people we meet on the street. The wisdom of God does not instruct them. The power of God is not sought to enable them. And the will of God does not limit them in any capacity. That's their folly. To James, he answers, first, they are fools. And there's three reasons why they're fools. Is because they have limited knowledge. He says that as much as he gets into verse 14. He says, whereas you do not know what's going to happen tomorrow. You have no idea. The, rel the relative pronoun of this you here, this, uh, it, it kind of reads like a whosoever. Whereas you, whoever you happen to be, you do not know what is going to happen tomorrow. And it corrects every single one of us, right? None of us have an effective knowledge of what's going to happen even in the next five minutes, or what's going to happen as we leave this building. And by the way, none of us are in control of it either. <laughs> Absolutely none of us. I quoted that verse of Proverbs 16.9, where it says, Man heart devises his own way, but you all know the rest of the verse. But God directs his steps. God's in complete control of all our circumstances. We can make all the plans we want, but that's as free as we are, is just the plans we're making in our, in our mind. God. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I've heard that saying before, and that's true. <laughs> we must rest in the wisdom of the one that knows. I know who holds tomorrow. I know who knows holds the next five minutes. Right? Amen. There might be, as David said, a step between me and death. I don't know. There may be nothing but harm for us when we go into that next city that we're planning on going. We may fall among violent ones. No one, said John Gill, no man can, no man can secure a day, an hour, a moment, and much less a year of continuance in this life, nor can he foresee what will befall him today or tomorrow. No one. And that's why it means. Boast not yourself of tomorrow. Proverbs 17, 1. You don't know what the day will bring forth. And that's why Christ himself warned in Matthew six thirty three, where he said, take no thought of tomorrow, for it'll be sufficiently evil. <laughs> There'll be plenty of things to worry about it will happen then. So there's a folly. They just don't know. They have limited knowledge, but they also have limited time. I tried to express this to my kids the other day, and I was just trying to do the math. 
All right, let's say you live to be 80 years old and you're already 20. You're 24, 25% of your downloads already done. But you, you know, I mean, you don't know. You don't know that you're going to live 80. You don't know. You have limited time. For what is your life, he says. It's even a vapor that appears for a short time and then vanishes away. What is your life? Or, or, or another way of looking at this, what he's asking, what sort of life do you have? Well, it's a contingent life. What do I mean by that? It depends on so many other things that are outside of you. <laughs> it's completely contingent. It's a short life. That's why Moses prayed in Psalm 90, verse 12. He said, teach us to number our days. That's where he says we might live 70. If we're really strong, we might live 80. <laughs> I know some people that got, were really, really strong. They lived to be 90 or, and on up into their late 90s. But that's about normal, 70, 80. It says, teach us to number our days that we may apply our hearts unto wisdom. David would often pray in Psalm 39, verse 4, for instance, Psalm 89, 47, let me know how short my time is, Lord. We're limited. It's completely out of our control. No matter what we do, our lives, like a vapor, will appear and then simply disappear. Our lives, our memories, our will as well, they're all going to come to an end. The plans, the plans of men end. Autonomous man is no more than a vapor uncertain vapor, the short appearance and disappearance. We get that idea of, of just a simply the breath you breathe out on a cold day. The dew disappears into the vapor in the sunrise. You ever walk out and you just kind of see the dew dissipating or walk over a pond or next to a pond uh, when it's steaming and watch the steam rise off of it. That's our life. My days are consumed, said the psalmist, Psalm 102. My days are consumed like smoke. My bones are burned as a hearth. We are but a little while. We don't choose our beginning. We don't choose our ending. And we don't choose any of the circumstances. We find ourselves in between those two points. That's the perimeter of our plans. That's why the psalmist said, I love Ecclesiastes chapter 12. It, it, it talks about getting older. It has all those pictures. You know, the almond tree shall flourish and, and the grinders cease because they are few. And though we were talking about eyes earlier. Uh, you know, the, the windows are darkened, uh, the eyes, the ears, all this stuff. And then it talks about the dust returning to the earth as it was. And that's why he said, remember now your creator in the days of your youth. I've been pressing that on my kids as much as possible, not the young ones. I'm not preaching to them. My, my older ones, uh, uh, we're, every second that ticks away, we are losing uh, that time for the glory of God. The vapor in the second part of the verse adds to the folly of the first part of the verse there. You don't know what's going to be a tomorrow, and your life is just a vapor. And then it goes on. There's a third point of folly here. We are limited in power. He says, for you ought to say, if the Lord will. 
Stalma says, I have said this once and yea, even twice, power belongs unto God. This is striking at the heart of humanistic thought. James is basically declaring here that by our will we can do nothing. Believe me, I've tried. <laughs> and so have you all so a lot of times. By your will you can do nothing. I'm not saying your will is not important. It's something that, something that God can redeem and use according to His will. Uh, uh, his will, and I praise the Lord for that. But James is here is declaring just that fact. We cannot live by our own will. And has already declared this truth that the state, he's already declared, you know, James, he's uh people say, well, James and and uh and Paul, they just disagree all, all together. Well, James even says you can't be saved absent the will or by your own will. What are you going all the way back to chapter one, verse 17, he says, uh, verse 18, of his own will begot he us with the word of truth. Uh, James taught salvation by grace through faith alone. Uh, so here he's even teaching that very same truth. It's your will can do nothing. This is an ethic for your life. An ethic for your pursuits. There is an ethical de declaration like I've already pointed out. It says you ought to say, you ought to confess this, that God alone gives power, in Him alone is our power to do, and we ought to be seeking His will. What is he saying basically this? Well, what's the, prayer, the great prayer that Christ taught His disciples? Our Father which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Hallowed be thy name, thy will be done. Or the, I missed part. The kingdom come, thy will be done. All right, I finally got it. And you all were, look, some of you are looking like, he don't know his Bible at all. <laughs> thy will be done, it is the prayer. Our plans should be made in the light of his will. His, and where do we find his will? We talked about that this morning. Right here. We have his express will. Well, God... <laughs> Oh, I, I don't know why I'm going to chase this rabbit again, but I, I remember this guy always saying to me, well, the God told me. Well, I mean, that's great. Is it written? No, I want to know that. Uh, his, his will is in his word, his expressed will, and we should be living towards us. Paul told the philosophers at Athens, he said, in God you live and move. It's just folly to speak, talk, about, to talk, talk about your own plans, your own desires, apart from Him. There is a need for us to submit. And there's this antithesis here. It says, you ought to say, if the Lord will, we shall live or do this or that. Submission to the will of God stands against and opposed to all forms of human autonomy. The text does not intend to teach us something. Some people will take it like this, and I just want to say this. The text does not intend to resign our autonomous plans, success. Well, I made these plans, and now I really hope God wills them to be finished. Uh, I, that's not what the text is teaching. Uh, I want these plans that I made independent of God to prosper. The text is teaching don't make plans that are independent of God. Period. Your will be done. There's a philosopher in the late 1800s you might have heard of, Friedrich Nietzsche. 
uh, he taught will to this idea of will to power. And that has really shaped where we are as a society. Right now we have such a belief in that that people believe that they can determine in their own, they can create themselves in their own mind and then they can force everything else in the world to conform to what they've created in their mind. This is, that's just Nietzscheism that's being played out in our day. This text rebukes that. This text rebukes secular thought that we can go about in our own plans, making our, doing our own will apart from God. The Christian life demands absolute lordship. It has do, does so time and time again, and that's one of the reasons I wanted to take time to just walk through this text, because that's what this is all about. His absolute lordship over us where we say with Paul, Lord, what would you have me to do? And that becomes the basis by which we move forward in our life. If he commands, I will live today and tomorrow. If he chooses, I will do either this or that. I depend totally upon him. And so we return to the foolishness in chapter, in verse, chapter 4, verse 16. But now you rejoice in your boasting. So he's just basically talking about the sinfulness of the, per, of, the per, of the person he's talking about here. You rejoice in your boasting. You've lifted your head up high. You, I mean, we have a whole generation that fits right here. You rejoice in your boasting, and all such rejoicing is evil. That's what we can write over this current generation. Unfortunately, we can write that very fact over this generation of professing Christians, right? That's the rejoicing. You almost get this image of uh, the, the underlying word here is uh, uh, for boasting is uh, almost has, is this idea of arrogance. And you get this image of a snake oil salesman. You all know what snake oil salesman are. <laughs> Uh, maybe you all don't watch a lot of westerns, but you always eventually have that snake oil. Or maybe you all remember Pete's Dragon. Uh, what, what's a Doc Terminus <laughs> from Pete's Dragon? Um, he's got all these little little elixirs, and these are the cure-alls. And, and the snake oil salesman boasting that this product can give and cure all ailments. And it's nothing more than quackery. That's kind of the thought of the word boasting here. And he says it's all evil. Barnes said, It is founded on a wrong view of ourselves and of what may occur. It shows a spirit forgetful of our dependence upon God, forgetful of the uncertainty of life, forgetful of many ways by which the best laid plans may be defeated. And the psalmist said, Except the Lord build the house, they labor in vain that build it. So now we come to verse 17. And we're prepared to understand exactly what verse 17 means because it says, therefore, based upon what I just said, to him that knows to do good and does not do it, well, then what is the good? The good is seeking the will of God in everything. I don't need to plan my day tomorrow without 
asking the question, what would the Lord have me to do? Hey, and just so we don't get this wrong, he's not saying it's a bad thing to go into this, such a city and to go and get gain. He's saying it's a bad thing to say, I'm going to do it without seeking God's will. And that is the good of our text. There's nothing wrong with a lot of our pursuits. There is something wrong when we do it autonomously without any thought of God. And that should always be the very first question of us as disciples. What is it that God wants me to do? I should be making plans already for, <laughs> for what I'm going to be doing tonight. And already, I mean, y'all don't have to like jot out my to-do list, but I'm going to go home later. What am I going to do? Well, I want to do God's will there. I want to go to work tomorrow. What, I want, what am I going to do tomorrow? I want to do what God would have me to do. Do an honest day's work, right? <laughs> be honest in my work. I want to make a plan, make my five-year plan, my 10-year plan. What, 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 what does that look like? Am I seeking God in it? See, this is how we practically look at this as disciples of Christ. Because the first question is, is what does God want? I hope you receive something from the Word of God tonight, brother.